Hello, and welcome to the Talent for Tomorrow podcast. I'm your host, Zora Mulligan, Commissioner of Higher Education for the state of Missouri and proud West Plains Zizzer. This podcast is part of the Talent for Tomorrow initiative, which is a big picture look at how we approach economic development and workforce development in the state of Missouri. Over the course of this series, you're going to hear us talk to state and national leaders about their vision of workforce development. We're also going to talk with a lot of real people because sometimes we forget as we review the data that it's actually about real people who are putting real boots on the ground. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to this series and hearing the real voices talk about developing talent for tomorrow. Friends and partners, uh, this is Rob Dixon, the director of the Missouri Department of Economic Development, here today with Commissioner of Higher Education, Zora Mulligan. We are joined by some of our top uh, regional and local community partners in economic development. Uh, with us on the phone are Jim Alexander from the St. Louis Regional Chamber, Tim Cowden from the Kansas City Area Development Council, John Maynard from the Cape Girardeau Area Chamber of Commerce, Josh McKim from Maryville, Nottoway, and Carolyn Chrisman from Kirksville. Really appreciate all you guys joining us today to have a conversation about uh, really what we all uh, know and believe to our core in economic development and in education, which is that if you're going to have economic development, you've got to have the talented workforce to get us there. So today's conversation is really all about that and your experiences on the front line uh, as economic developers, as people who are engaged every single day with the business community of our state and trying to help expand our current, uh, our current, current businesses as well as to attract new ones to our state. So we just appreciate everybody for joining us. So this uh, podcast is really designed to help uh, our audience across the state, uh, the folks who are interested in economic development policy and education and workforce policy really understand uh, really what it's all about. So I'm interested, um, I'll start with you, John Maynard from Cape. When you talk with existing businesses in the Cape Girardeau area and also you know the companies that you're trying to recruit, what are their main concerns about talent and talent related issues? been an interesting you know with the recent amazon hq thing you know we started to see some trends where companies would take a look and only consider areas that they believe have a certain concentration of either people or skill sets of people that kind of thing and that's i think that's becoming more and more part of the deal um, so certainly there's there's no doubt that they can pull the demographics and they can look at those kinds of things they have to be comfortable that if they're going to employ 250 people, and of those 250 people, they need these certain skill sets, they have to be comfortable that those people are within the normal recruiting patterns for employment that, that are around in your area. Yeah. Carolyn, I'm curious from your perspective, is it different in a more rural area? Uh, no, it's, it's exactly as John has stated it, that um, a lot of companies, they do know the demographics and I know in our area we try to keep as a region um, labor studies that show kind of our underemployment rate or our retiree rate or maybe our stay-at-home moms or something and what it would take to bring them back into the workforce simply because as a community we need to have some way to um, talk with site selectors and let them know um, that sometimes there there is a different story, boots on the ground, than what you're seeing with you know, U.S. Census data or uh, some other kind of data that doesn't drill down um, real deep. But, but no, John's, John's right on target there. It's the same in a rural area. 
So Carolyn, I think that's really interesting. You know, as Rob and I have worked through this process and really started to think what we think are the most important drivers, we've really started to think of it in terms of number one, getting more people in the workforce and two, getting more people more productive in the workforce and then all you know, with a solid undergirding of good economic development strategy. So one of the things I hear you saying is that you're, you're kind of doing the former. You're trying to bring more people into the workforce. So even though maybe in, in Kirksville, the population isn't growing, but you're trying to dig deeper within the resources that you have to bring more people into it back into the workforce or into the workforce is that am i hearing you right yeah no you're you're spot on uh one of the the labor supply studies that we're having done uh you know measures some folks retire early and some need to would love to come back into the workforce even if it's 10 hours or 20 hours a week a lot of them need to because of maybe health insurance costs or other things and so but how do you quantify that and so we've really tried to quantify that um, for for a variety of, of folks in our region, and so that's exactly what we we have to do. You know, um, as I kind of think back on some of the economic development projects that I've worked on um, over my career, uh, there's been a couple that really stand out to me. And I worked on one in uh, Southwest Missouri, uh, a craft foods expansion, and it was an existing employer in Springfield, but it was essentially an expansion opportunity for us. But we were competing with other communities. Uh, around the country who were looking at that as a business attraction opportunity. And, you know, business attraction and business expansions, kind of the existing business, new business divide, um, has kind of divided somewhat over the years, the economic development uh, profession, so to speak. There's been folks that have kind of specialized in, in one or the other. Um, but it seems to me that over the last maybe decade or so, at least since the recession, um, in terms of the way we go about uh, winning an expansion or winning uh, a new attraction project have gotten a lot more similar uh, than they used to be in that uh, it's a lot more analytic driven that there's site selectors involved now for both expansion projects and for attraction projects and i'm just curious with the diverse group uh, on the phone here today um, whether it's an existing business or whether it's an attraction project where does talent and workforce rank in the overall kind of list of variables, the deal drivers, as we often like to call them, on whether or not a company is going to expand in our community or whether we're going to attract them in from the outside. But where does, kind of in the overall list of things that they're thinking about, where does talent rank? And I'd maybe start with Tim uh, in particular, Tim Cowden. Uh, talent is the first question that's going to be posed. It's going to be the last question before a decision is made on behalf of your community or region. And everywhere in the middle, there's going to be all sorts of questions about, can you help me identify, ramp up, and sustain a talent base? That's, that's the lingua franca of economic development or site selection or site elimination today is talent. And you have to present your region as an attractive place for talent to want to come and build their life and career. And then you have to be able to tell that story and back it up with data. Again, information is the currency of our business. You have to be able to provide that data to your client throughout the process because they will ask you again at the beginning. They'll certainly ask you at the end. That'll be the last question they have is, can I get the people that I need to operate successfully over time? And then again, everything in between, there'll be all sorts of iterations about uh, questions about talent. Uh, I just left a meeting where we have a strategy group that looks at foreign direct investment opportunities for the St. Louis region. Two of the members of our group just got back from a, a food 
uh, food processing and agricultural technology conference, very high-level investor conference in the Netherlands. And they said that every person they talked to that was considering coming to the U.S. or focusing on Missouri, it was, can you attract and retain the specific talent that I need to, to establish and grow my business uh, in the St. Louis region? And as Tim was saying, it's, uh, I talked to a, bit, a manufacturing business recently that's expanding. And so what are your top three criteria? They said talent was all three. You just heard from a group of economic developers, including that last voice, Jim Alexander from the St. Louis Regional Chamber. I think the message is loud and clear. It's talent, talent, talent. That's demand of the employers of today. We also wanted to talk a little bit about the past and what the past has to teach us in terms of this massive at-scale entry of new people into the workforce, largely through the conduit of higher education. Gary Kramer joined Rob and I for a conversation about the GI Bill and its impact in Missouri to help us think broadly again about big change at massive scale. Um, tell us a little bit about how the GI Bill pa uh, impacted Missourians. Well, first of all, uh, I think it's important to understand that it too was a product of history that coming out of World War I, um, Americans had felt very disappointed with how veterans had been treated. So there was an effort in the 1920s to do something, and that pretty much failed. And in 1932, there was a march on Washington, the bonus march. And so first of all, uh, FDR is the president of the United States is trying to avoid that kind of thing. And he wants to really do something that is transformational. And so he gets Congress uh, to pass, and he signs in 1944 this bill that is going to make it possible for uh, these GIs to do a variety of things, including go to school and to, to, to have their tuition paid for and also to get a small stipend. Uh, it, it, and it really is transformational. I mean, the war itself is transformational. So many of these Missourians, like my father, uh, had hardly been out of the county of their birth. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they're halfway around the world. They're in, uh, you know, in Australia or they're in, in uh, Europe. And they're seeing things that they had never seen before. And also, while they're gone, Missouri has been transformed. Mm -hmm. It's no longer this rural community of farmers. Uh, these were people who, in many cases, were not prepared for a post-World War II world. They had no skills other than their brute and their brawn. Mm -hmm. um, and so this opportunity was, was really pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. It is, absolutely. You know, this conversation is uh, personal for me on a, on a couple fronts. And first off, Zora and I are both native Missourians and I think share a, a true love for the history of our state. Um, on, th on the other hand, I'm also uh, a veteran who used the GI Bill myself to go to college. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, from a, a kind of a global perspective, or at least as it's affected society overall, um, you know, for me personally, it was absolutely a transformational opportunity in my life. Um, there's no way that I could have uh, come back home after serving overseas um, and gone to school as quickly and, uh, uh, and as successfully as I, as, as I was able to without the GI Bill. And I feel like that was a, a tremendous experience in my own life. Has that same experience happened for our fellow citizens? Has it been overwhelmingly positive uh, like it was for me, or have there been kind of ups and downs uh, for them as well? I think it was very positive for the World War II generation. Right. Uh, but you've got to remember, these are people who are coming out 
of, uh, of an incredible experience having defeated mm-hmm. yes. uh, the Nazis, having defeated the Axis powers, uh, there, there is a, a sense of there is nothing we can't do. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the world is absolutely open to us and so that there is hope and there is optimism. And there's also a pent up desire. Mm-hmm. These are people who had gone for 10, 12, 15 years really struggling through the depression, right. uh, not having the, the, the creature comforts that we all have come to, to mm-hmm. accept. And so th- there's a pent up desire. These are people who are motivated, mm-hmm. incredibly motivated. That's one of the reasons why they, they change higher education, not just by their numbers. They overwhelm the colleges, especially the University of Missouri. But they're also uh, transformational in who they are and how old they are mm-hmm. and what their, what their experiences have been. You know, you're, you're not going to tell a guy who is at Iwo Jima right. that uh, he can't do this, that, or the other, or that uh, he's got to wear a beanie because upperclassmen think he's got to go through a hazing process. <laughs> it, it, right. it fundamentally transforms. It, it brings the working class to higher education. Prior to the GI Bill, I think you could argue that higher education in Missouri and elsewhere in the country was largely an upper class, uh, certainly upper middle class, a multi-generational. These were not first-time graduate or uh, students. These were people who were the children and grandchildren of people who had gone to higher education institutions. Not so with the GIs. You know, they're rough, they're eager, uh, they're not, they don't want to mess around. They come with a sense of seriousness and purpose and clarity. Uh, They want to make certain that what they are learning is applicable and is going to have the functional uh, reality of them getting a job. So it's, it's, it's a very different experience on campus and their numbers are are astounding uh, there are some reports that during the war uh, the University of Missouri Columbia uh, which of course was the only campus the University of Missouri I guess there was a school of mines declines to 2,000 or 2,200 mm-hmm. and by the fall of, of 1946 there are over 10,000 students mm-hmm. descending on uh, Columbia and 70 percent or more of them are veterans and I mean, just the sheer challenge of housing and feeding yes. those people is <laughs> almost mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine what our society and economy would be like without such a generational transformation like that, as well as the kind of the ripple effects that that has had, that if your grandfather mm-hmm. went to school in the GI Bill, that would probably increase the chances that your father and your, your mother would, and then increase your chances as a student as well. So now we're going to pivot to the future and talk a little bit about the role of higher education institutions in educating the future workforce. We were joined in this conversation by Martin Vanderwerf. Uh, Mr. Vanderwerf works for the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. And my colleague Marty Leathers, who's Missouri's Director of Workforce Development, and I had a great conversation by phone with Mr. Vanderwerf. The downside is that because it was by phone, there were a little bit of connection issues, but I promise that it's worth listening to because this was one of my favorite interviews over the course of our podcast series. Mr. Vanderworth works for the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce, and by that alone, he's one of the top experts in post-secondary education and its impact on people who participate in post-secondary education. Um, He also has been a reporter and editor with the Chronicle of Higher Education and maybe of greatest import to us here in Missouri. He um, was the editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for a period of time and remembered his experience of living and working in Missouri very fondly when we spoke. 
things change. Things change really fast. One thing, one part of the connect between higher education and the work is that higher education changes very slowly. The workforce changes really quickly, and so I could conceivably start a four-year degree program in a period in which there's a lot of demand for that job. Um, and end my four-year degree program on time and find that there isn't that much demand anymore. Right. And yeah. so one, one thing that I think needs to happen that needs to draw higher education and the workforce more closely together is this idea that there needs to be kind of constant inputs into the curriculum, um, mm-hmm. constant adjustments to what's really happening on the outside. We are not doing a disservice to students by by considering what is happening in the outside world that's going to diminish or improve their job prospects when they get out. We're actually doing a service to students by doing that. But mm-hmm. that's not really what's happening right now. Um, and that's when we talk about the disconnect between workforce and higher ed. And, and I, I like to say mostly post-secondary because higher ed you know, covers so many different things from nonprofit colleges to community colleges to four-year institutions um, to certificates um, and associate's degrees, not just four-year degrees. But we're not doing a great job right now of connecting the two. We'll hear more from Mr. Vanderwerf in future podcasts. He really is, like I said, a great thought leader and a person with a lot of very interesting things to say about higher education. Uh, I also want to thank those who joined us for the other segments of the show today. That Those include the economic developers from around the state, uh, Gary Kramer from the State Historical Society, and then Rob Dixon, the Director of Economic Development, for joining me in these interviews.